0: The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist,
1: therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before
0: beginning or changing any program or idea discussed.
2: Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan.
0: Hi, welcome to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan. It's my great pleasure today to introduce John, a victim of the overprescribing epidemic in America. He's here to share his own hero's journey of recovery from opioid use disorder. John embodies the true resilience that it takes to recover from addiction. He lived through childhood trauma, stigma, multiple relapses, and multiple attempts at treatment. But the Biggest factor is that he persevered and he never gave up. John, I appreciate you being on the show today and being willing to share your story of recovery with us.
2: Yes, thank you for having me.
0: John, what can you tell us? Let's start with childhood. What can you tell us about how you grew up?
2: Well, I had a, as I look back now as an adult, I believe it was a very good childhood, um, At a young age, I was, you know, my biological mother was in a severe car accident. So I was given up for an adoption and um, I was fortunate, you know, from the stories that I, you know, have been told that I went from grandma to grandma and they couldn't handle that. So my aunt and uncle took me in at a very young age um, at six months old, I believe. And they took me in, and ever since then, they were my mom and dad. Um, they were great people, um, very, very giving people. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a lot of money growing up, but they always made sure that us kids, they provided for us kids um, anything that we needed or that we wanted. And, you know, it was a great upbringing. Um, you know, and all the way I lived with them all the way up until I moved out at uh, 19 years old. So they, uh, like I said, provided for us kids. There was myself, and then I have two brothers and a stepsister. Um, my stepsister's battling cancer right now. She's, she's doing pretty good. But uh, my older stepbrother had passed. He passed about four years ago. So right now, it's just me, my stepbrother, and my sister who's battling with cancer.
0: Oh, I see. And when you say your grandmothers tossed you back and forth, six months old, and they couldn't uh, handle you, I wonder what that meant.
2: Yeah, you know, that's like the story that I was told, Mm -hmm. and I kind of asked the same question, like, what does that mean, tossed back and forth? Mm -hmm. And they explained to me that you know my mother's mother couldn't do it anymore so tried my dad's mother and she was not capable of you know providing for me so she did not feel comfortable taking me in at that time
0: okay and then at so 6 that, months then you were sent to live with the aunt and uncle who became yes. your your real parents correct And how much contact did you have, John, with your uh, bio mom and your bio dad? And what do you remember about that?
2: So at um, probably age nine or 10, um, I was introduced to my biological father, which was, you know, kind of hard for a young child at that age to, you know, meet somebody that you've never met before. And then they're telling me that this is my father and it w- it was tough, you know, and my biological mother was not in the picture at the time. Um, like I said, she was in a severe car accident and I didn't meet her until I was like age 14 or 15. Like I said, at age 10 is kind of hard to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. So you know he he tried, I guess, if that's what you want to call it, you know, trying to get back into my life and things like that, but I knew who my true mother and father were.
0: Oh that you know, would have been very there. very awkward.
2: Yes, it was very awkward um it was hard, it was very hard, and you know i at that age, I don't really have too much say, so you know, I went with the flow and um he tried coming back into my life, but as I got older. I realized what kind of person he was. He was a raging alcoholic. Uh, Um, You know, would take me to places a 14 or 15 year old kid should not be, like a horse track where he's drinking all day and gambling and betting and things like that.
0: Okay, so that's not a real connection.
2: No, there was no real connection at all. No. you know, I played along with it for a while just because of the age that I was at. I kind Mm -hmm. of felt like, I had to. Right. But as I got older, you know, when I can make my own decisions and realize who this person was and who my real mother and father were, I made the decision to just cut them completely out of my life.
0: And can you remember the first time you met your mom when you were 14?
2: I, I can. Yep. She was, she's disabled to this day, I believe. Um, she was, from what I was told, she was in a coma for over eight months, and they told my father that she would never live. Uh, but she did live, and she's paralyzed. her whole left side of her body is completely paralyzed, so she's in a wheelchair and things like that. Um, my father went back with her because, you know, these are things that I was told, but went back to her because of the disability and, you know, the money and things that she was getting you know, while she was very sick, as, you know, as we could say.
0: Okay. So do you remember the feeling you had as a 14-year-old boy in the room with her?
2: Yeah, the feeling kind of was like when I first met my father, you know, it's just hard to accept that at this age I'm finally meeting who is my biological mother, you know. (laughs) And I really never was able to build a relationship with her because of the control that my father had over her.
0: Uh, what, what do you mean?
2: Um, well, he just completely controlled her. You know, she's disabled but and handicapped. You know, she doesn't work and things like that. So he would just be in control of her and would tell her that I, she couldn't talk to me without talking with him first and things like that.
0: Oh, that's unfortunate.
2: You know, it, it is. It kind of seemed like, you know, he was taking advantage of her disability, right. which is not right.
0: That's pretty <laughs> sad for a 14-year-old to see a mother who's disabled and controlled and handicapped. And was she mentally handicapped as well as physically?
2: Yes, she was. Yep. From the car accident. From the car accident, yes. Okay,
0: so that's really sad and really disappointing and very anxiety-producing for a young kid. Do you remember the final straw that led you to disengage from your dad?
2: Yeah, um, as I mentioned earlier, that the only places he would take me was wherever there was alcohol involved. Um, and I just, you know, my my parents that took me in explain to me, you know, you're, you're old enough to make your decision. If you want to cut this off, you can cut it off. And, you know, because I would go home to them all upset and explain what was going on and where mm-hmm. we went and what we did. It was ne- never any like kid activities or fun things like that. It was based around what he wanted to do.
0: All about him. And in that relationship yeah. with your dad, when you were a boy, you felt what? Give me two feeling words.
2: I felt anger. Yep. And lots of disappointment.
0: Oh, I bet. Oh, it's infuriating, right? I mean, this guy finally shows up. You're 10 years yeah. old. He hasn't had any contact with you. And then, you know, it's, it's very disappointing. He's got an alcohol problem and he's not attuned to your needs.
2: Yes. And, right? you know, like I said, I knew him until the, probably age 18. And that's when I, you know, drew the final straw and things like that. I just didn't want to be any part of it anymore. I seen enough. I had enough. Um,
0: You know, um, so many people think that addiction stems from an attachment wound of childhood. Uh, When we grow up, right, we need a parent who's attuned to us, who's going to see what we need before we even voice it, who's going to reflect back who they think we are, contribute to our sense of self and soothe us, right? Comfort us, give us a sense of safety, keep us safe. But the biological parents surely failed at that.
2: Absolutely. Yes, they did.
0: Right. But there's definitely uh, some wounding in childhood uh, surrounding the attachment with the biological parents.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then can you tell us a little bit about the addiction and how it began and how it progressed?
2: Yeah, so... My senior year of high school, I was injured in a football game. Um, broke my leg in like four different places, tore my ACL, my MCL. So I was prescribed pain medicine after my knee surgery. Okay. And you know, for the first three or four years I took as prescribed. Um, I was on them for a long time. Like I said, three or four years I was doing it, you know, the proper way, if you want to call it that.
0: But somebody prescribed them for three to four years?
2: I had two different doctors prescribing me. Yes. Right. I had my you know, my general doctor, and then I was also getting severe migraines at that age. So I also had another doctor that was prescribing me pain pills for migraines.
0: Okay, gotcha.
2: So, you know, like I said, I was following directions, and then... I realized how much I liked the feeling of them.
0: Sure. How did they make you feel?
2: They made me feel great. Like I was invincible. Um, You know, I felt very energetic. I felt like I could do anything, you know, at any time. So they made me feel great. And, you know, I tried playing the system as long as I could. Uh, You know, I had two different doctors. And then so... I want to say that was for a good ten years that that went on, mm-hmm. where I was getting prescribed, you know, um, Percocet, oxycotin, and oxycodone. I'm sorry, oxycodone and Percocet.
0: So, if you were having a bad day, they they comforted you, they smoothed out all the wrinkles and the disappointments, and you were in college, correct?
2: I was in college, yep. I uh, went to a two-year school. I finished there with my associates, and then I went to a f- uh, four-year school after that. And, and
0: w- were you playing sports in college before you had the injury?
2: I was not. I was, actually had a scholarship to go play baseball my senior year of high school, but that oh. was taken away after I uh, had a severe knee injury where it took a good almost two years to rehab.
0: So let me ask you that: How was uh, how much of a loss was that losing the scholarship?
2: That hurt a lot. Uh, baseball was was my life. I loved playing baseball. That's all I did for since I was six years old. You know, and my father uh, was at every single game. Not your, my biological your father, adoptive my, father. My adopted father. He didn't matter if I was. You know, as I got older, four hours away playing in Pennsylvania, he would be there. Um, You know, he would work overtime just so he could have gas money to make it there that weekend. That's the kind of people that my adopted parents were.
0: So they were really proud of you. And this was part of your identity. Yes. Right. And and you're 18 years old or 17 when I was
2: 17 at that time.
0: And you remember the day you figured out, I'm never going to be able to go and play ball at college. I'm going to lose the scholarship.
2: I remember that phone call and it was, it hurt a lot. I bet. Um, You know, it was a full ride to play baseball and. Oh, well, They offered me a certain percentage, but at that time I couldn't afford to go to that school, so.
0: So I mean, big, big loss at the age of seventeen, and is that's when the pain pills started?
2: Yes. Okay. That's when they all started. What? What a 17. setup!
0: A setup for disaster, right? Three to four yes. years of prescription pain pills on yep. a da- on a daily basis. Then
2: there was a daily base. Well, if the first year, I want to say it was not a daily basis. I tried to only take it when needed. Yep. Um, but like I said, the way it made me. F- made me feel, I started taking it every day.
0: So the loss of the baseball and the disappointment and the anger around the bio dad, this smooths everything out, I would imagine.
2: I, you know, I, I, you know, now today with my sobriety, I know it's an excuse, but back then I would always use that as an excuse why to use or take more.
0: Right. Sure. You know? Yep. And. So the tolerance built gradually. And what happened when you started needing more and more and more of the pain pills?
2: So as time went on, and I was in college, um, like I said, they were prescribing me Percocet and oxycodone at the time. And then it started, it got to that time where it was they were starting to buckle down a little bit on the mm-hmm. you know, pain pills. So it was a little harder to get prescriptions from my doctors. I was able to get them, you know, from one doctor for a little while. Uh, the other doctor completely shut me off. Uh, but one doctor just kept prescribing them and prescribing them. And then once that ran out, I, you know, I knew I was addicted, mm-hmm. you know, so I tried getting sober and I think that lasted maybe six months, seven months. And that was all on my own trying to get sober. And you were
0: how old at that time?
2: I was 20, 23 or 24. Mm Yeah. At that time, maybe a little older. And I tried, you know, getting sober on my own. Um, I had it, I had a good six months under my belt and then I was introduced to the Oxycontins.
0: Oh, and that's game over.
2: And that was game over. So powerful yeah. and, and it was cold. very powerful.
0: Yep, and not supposed to be uh, addictive.
2: No, it well, I could tell you what, it was very addictive. <laughs> it took me over real quick. I, I um, you know, I got a connection where I could find them and buy them. Yep. And next thing I know, I had a better connection and I was getting a lot of them where I could sell some and, you know, provide for my habit. Right, And it just got real ugly. It was how
0: real many ugly. milligrams of the Oxy's a day?
2: So when I started, I it was like 40 milligrams a day mm-hmm. when I first started the Oxycontins. And then as time went on, I was up to like in my final days of the Oxycontins, I was probably using three to four 80 milligrams a day. So, oh, well, 40 milligrams to
0: 320 on a bad day. Wow. On a
2: bad day. Yes.
0: Okay. And so at, when did it become no longer uh, possible to continue that level of an addiction?
2: In, in between there, you know, I tried sobriety a couple more times on myself. I get a couple weeks or a couple months here and there, Mm -hmm. but I was never clean, completely clean. Um, and then, you know, I got a couple of legal issues here and there and it just escalated. So I reached out for some help and I started going getting some counseling and, you know, it, it worked for a little while here and there. It seemed to be like my same routine. You know, I get a couple months here and there. Mm -hmm. And then when I was doing the counseling, I'd get a little more, I'd get maybe eight months under my belt and then uh, right back at it again. And then I was introduced, you know, to the heroin.
0: Okay. And And yeah. How did that feel compared to the Oxycontin?
2: Because at the time the pills were no longer available. Mm -hmm. They, They were very hard to find and the heroin was matched, you know, it felt just like the Oxycontin. So I ended up turning to the heroin. Um, and
0: what were the consequences that you were uh, accruing?
2: Um, so I got arrested for, this was before I was introduced to the heroin and stuff like that. I was uh, charged for forgery of a prescription. Okay. Uh, That's when my doctor started cutting me off, you know, so they gave me a real low uh, amount Mm -hmm. and I tried up in that amount and I got a little bit of legal problems.
1: Okay. Yep.
2: And like I said, that was before I was introduced to the heroin and stuff like that, but it wasn't far after that.
0: And then tell me a little bit about the treatment that you tried, what worked and what didn't. And when did you decide to go into uh, alcohol and drug treatment?
2: So I met my wife 15 years ago Mm -hmm. and that was right at where my prime of use was. I was in heavy use when I first met her. And when I met her, you know, I tried getting sober all on my own. That didn't work. So then after a year of knowing my wife, she finally talked me into getting some, some help like counseling Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, a drug psychologist or a specialist. And, um, so I did, I know I listened to her. Um, I guess I met my wife. She's a wonderful woman and she got me in to get some help. And I, uh, was it, or I made a couple of appointments. I was doing, uh, counseling three days a week. And then I met with a doctor and I was prescribed Suboxone and mm-hmm. It changed my life at the time. I, you know, huh, so? was, I was taking it as I was told, and it just made me not want to use anymore. And it kept me on my daily routines, going to work, doing what I needed to do, and being able to function. And I did that for probably three years. It was three years, and then... So one day, the doctor I was going to told me that uh, she was going to cut me off of the suboxone. How come? She said it was no more; it was not needed anymore. She thought I was at a point in my life where it was not needed.
0: Oh, based on what? Because you were doing so well?
2: Because I was doing so well, yes.
0: That makes no sense. That's like saying to a diabetic, uh, you know, you, your blood sugars have been great for two years. Uh, let's stop the insulin.
2: Yeah. And it was not like, oh, well, you're taking eight milligrams. We're going to give you six months to a year to wean off it. It was you're taking eight milligrams. I'm going to put you on four milligrams this week and then next week on two milligrams and you're done.
0: So a two week uh, taper plan from eight milligrams a day that you'd been on for two years and you're doing well.
2: I was doing very well. It was the best that I've done in probably twenty years, eighteen what you, years. What do
0: you make of her resistance to keeping you on the suboxone?
2: I tried explaining how well I was doing, and you know I was proving to her how you know I was willingly going in and doing random drug tests and things like that, and everyone was clean, and I just she she wasn't gonna budge. She would not. Listen to anything I had to say or any of the wishes that I had. It was just, I was done, completely cut off.
0: You were at her mercy because she was the prescriber.
2: Absolutely.
0: And what was it yeah. like to taper off uh, in two weeks? Because typically so, it can take years to get off.
2: Yeah. So it, it was not pleasant. Uh, I can say that it was very unpleasant. What, um, were, the, what were the symptoms, I, John? The symptoms were horrible withdrawal symptoms, Uh, the sweats, um, very sick. And, you know, at the time I was like, all right, she's going to do this. Let's just do it. And I accepted it. And once she cut me completely off, I was sicker than a dog for a good four or five days. And I couldn't handle it anymore. I just couldn't handle it. I tried calling her back and seeing if she'd take me back. And, She wouldn't return any of my phone calls. So what did I do? I'm right back on the streets again, and I started using.
0: Well, of course, because opiate withdrawal is one of the worst withdrawals known to man. So this is the worst part of opiate withdrawal is what? What symptom?
2: For me, it's probably the sweats and not being able to sleep. Like very restless. um, Restless legs restless legs. I would be in bed. My wife would know when I'm withdrawing because I'd be very fidgety. I'd be all over the place. I'd be sweating one minute. I'd be freezing the next minute, um, constantly going to the bathroom. Yep. It was just something I never want to experience ever again.
0: So <laughs> diarrhea, abdominal cramping, muscle cramping?
2: It, horribly. And how high is Horrible. the
0: level of anxiety?
2: Oh, the anxiety is through the roof. You know, my mind spinning, thinking of what can I do? How can I do this? How can I do that? And, you know, obviously the addiction part takes me over, and that's why I went back to using.
0: I think that's the worst part for a lot of people. Once you get past the uh, physical withdrawal, it's the obsession, the mental obsession, the craving that kicks in that occupies 95% of your waking thoughts. So, yes. what was she thinking, right? What What is the opposition to being on uh, buprenorphine? Is it that it's a control? It's a controlled substance.
2: I I, I couldn't understand it. I really couldn't. And, well, and what what bothered me the most from this was none of this was brought up to me at the introduction of so meeting she, with her.
0: Oh, got it. She never said we'll put you on it for two years and then we'll slowly taper you off it. So. What I say to my patients is, this is a partial opioid. You will become dependent on it. I would suggest that you stay on it. Uh, it, The advice is that addiction is a chronic disease. Uh, It's maintenance. Do not taper. Stay on it uh, until your life is, is awesome for a couple of years. And then when you ever, if you ever want to taper off it, bring it up to me and we'll talk about it. We'll talk about what's going on in your life. And then we'll we'll devise some kind of a very, very, very slow taper plan. And if you start feeling shaky, then we hold it at that dose. But right. I, don't, I don't recommend tapering. I recommend it uh, as maintenance. And so does the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry and the American Society of Addiction Medicine and the American Psychiatric Association long-term maintenance is, and do not taper. That is the recommendation. That's the first choice uh, treatment for opioid use disorder. So the fact that she didn't even return your calls, I'm so sorry.
2: Yeah, it was a little frustrating. I, it was even to the point where my wife was on the phone trying to get a hold of her and call her back and try to just get an explanation out of why she did this. And if this is the proper way of doing it, you know, so, uh, my wife was pretty upset about it, obviously, because so, she sees her husband in severe withdrawals and she knows what he's going to end up doing.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and then what happened after the withdrawal and you went back to heroin? What happened after that?
2: So that's when, you know, I was back at it. And for a good couple of years, I want to say two, three years and in between there, I tried to get help. But, you know, my addiction took me over pretty strong. And then I got into another legal issue, because Mm -hmm. my addiction couldn't stay up with my bank account. So I was finding other ways to provide for my addiction. Mm -hmm. And I got I got arrested. And um, not a very fun time.
0: Was that for drug selling?
2: That was for selling things to purchase drugs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was stealing things from work, just like to provide for my habit. And it caught up to me. It happens. Yeah. And um, so that's when, you know, I'd dragging my wife through the mud for 10 years, or this is going on, yeah, probably eight years. And finally, she says, we got to do something again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this time it has to work. Right. So... I was very, very scared and very hesitant on it, but she did a lot of research. I did a lot of research and I found another Suboxone provider that pretty much saved my life because as of the 20th of this month, I will have four years of sobriety.
0: Oh my God. Congratulations. That's magnificent.
2: Yes, so and that's the longest sobriety I've had in twenty years.
0: Wow! And stayed on Suboxone the whole time.
2: And I've stayed on Suboxone. I'm on Suboxone uh, today, as we speak today. And this wonderful, you know, my doctor that I was introduced to, you know, talked with my wife, talked with me, and the situation I was in and how bad I was in. I accepted on going to inpatient facility for 30 days. Mm -hmm. And it changed my life. It really did. I was very scared. I felt like I wasn't gonna be able to provide for my family. When I was gone for 30 days, I have two Mm -hmm. young children. And I was scared. You know, I'm 40, 42 years old at this time. And I was very scared. But I did it. And it was probably the best 28 days of my life.
0: what works for you, uh, John, tell us about the treatment center, that 28 day rehab. What, what was really, what was helpful?
2: So I want to say the biggest thing for me was getting everything out. I'm a person that I held a lot of things in. I, Mm -hmm. I would hold everything in and never let anybody in to my, you know, my little cloud. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, my upbringing, I've explained earlier, you know, I always use that as my excuse when I was using drugs and things like that. But, you know, I had a lot of resentment towards my biological parents and I never told people about that and a lot of anger towards that. And of course, I went to this facility, I not pretty, I mean, you know, my counselor was great. He was awesome. And they said, before you leave here, you have to give a story your, of your whole life and you cannot leave anything out.
0: Oh, wow. That's overwhelming.
2: It was, you know, and I uh, had a hard time with that at first. The first week or two I was there, I had a really hard time with it because I'm like, I don't open up to anybody. Why am I going to open up to strangers? And I did it. And I tell you, after I did that, I felt like I lifted a hundred pounds off my back.
0: What was and the I don't know. Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
2: What it was, I'm sorry. Yeah. It was just a sigh of a huge relief, just letting everything out, everything that's happened to me in my childhood, my whole you know, time of using, how much trouble I got in, and things like that. I just felt like I have nothing else to hide. You know, you, nothing you, else to hide.
0: You unburdened yourself. I did. A- and, and you it, put it, words it, to the story.
2: I did. I put a lot of words to the story.
0: And how did and they respond the people in your treatment groups and your, and your counselor, how did they react?
2: My counselor after, you know, cause you got to stand up in front of 30, 40 people and tell your story. And first of all, I'm terrible speaking in front of everybody, anybody.
0: <laughs> You're doing pretty so, well today.
2: Yeah. He, thank you. He told me I did a great job and, Like He actually teared up. He was very proud of me of how I let everything out because I told him certain things that I wasn't sure if I was going to tell other people, and he was very happy that I let it all out. He was very proud of me.
0: Well, I think I've heard that if you experience trauma as a child and you don't ever put words to it, you can't metabolize it. So it becomes a wound that festers like an abscess. And I think what you did by putting words to this is you helped process it, right? You, you moved through it. You, yes. you, you let some of it go. And, and people heard your pain, right? There's nothing worse than unwitnessed pain and suffering that you're stuffing inside and nobody knows about it, right?
2: And, and that's exactly it. it um, you know, there are a couple of people that went before me and told their stories. And I'm like, Wow you know there was a couple of wow moments and mm-hmm. after i told my story a couple of the people that were in the groups at that time they're like wow <laughs> i thought i had a story mm-hmm. and you know they everybody praised everybody else for speaking and things like that so it it was nice it was rewarding
0: did you have a lot of friends before you went to treatment like what had happened to your relationships while you were using heroin
2: So, obviously, I had my relationships, my friends that I used with. Right. And then I also had friends that knew I was using, but they kind of distanced themselves from me because they knew the situation I was in. Okay. And so, for me, I had a distance from the people I was using with, and I didn't care. You know, for me, it's people, places, and things. Yep. And I had to move away from them. I actually moved. You know, I used to live on the east side. Now I live on the west side. Mm-hmm. I actually had to move far away from the people that I was hanging around with.
0: That and, makes um, sense.
2: A lot of my close friends were very proud of me that I went to an inpatient facility. I bet. They knew that's what I needed. Yep. And, um, you know, when I got out, they were all there for me. They're still for, there for me today. And they are, you know, they're proud of me.
0: This, this is a wonderful story John. What happened after the rehab? did you go to aftercare did you do any kind of uh outpatient uh, alcohol and drug group work or individual work
2: yes I did uh, actually still today I do i uh, meet with a counselor and um, you know a, a group it's called a men's group okay and um so when I first got out of inpatient you know I knew that if i didn't do a couple meetings a week that it would not, I had to stay on track. So I went to like three or four meetings a week for probably a good month or two after my inpatient.
0: Uh, would that be AA meetings or NA meetings?
2: Uh, I did both. I did AA and I did NA. I had to find the ones that, you know, kind of took my interest. So mm-hmm. it took yep. me a little bit to find a couple good ones, but.
0: And what did you get from the AA or the NA meetings?
2: So I got, you know, I actually met a couple people. Um, I still speak to one of them today. Um, I got, you know, a couple of their stories, a couple of people that can't bring themselves to go to a 30 day facility.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But they're willing to, you know, give a little bit about themselves at an AA meeting. Yep. And, you know, try to give them some feedback. So I, I got quite a bit out of it. Um, it, so and- today, I don't attend as many meetings as I should, mm-hmm. but I do counseling. I meet with a counselor one-on-one, um, and that's big for me.
0: And what did you get out of the men's group? And this was a men's group at a chemical dependency treatment center outpatient, right? Once a week?
2: Yeah. Yep. Once a week. And that is probably the best group that I've ever been in.
0: Oh, how so? so Tell me about it.
2: You know, nothing against women.
0: Yeah. It's nope. just...
2: You no know, offense. Men, men's group, it's just a bunch of men get together and let off all their steam and, you know, talk about their week and how good their week's been or how bad their week has been and things like that. So it, for me, it's just nice to meet with people that are like me.
0: And, and so these are guys that uh, they care how you're doing.
2: They do care. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a few in there that maybe don't care, but there are quite a few in there. You can tell do care.
0: They say that the antidote to addiction is healthy relationships. Would you agree with that?
2: A hundred and ten percent. Right. My relationship with my wife since I've been sober for four years is probably the best it's ever been.
0: Yeah. When are we going to canonize her? yeah right <laughs> <laughs> she she's she's pretty awesome isn't she?
2: she is she's you know she's been by my side from day one. um I give a lot of credit to her. um she's helped me through a lot in the last fifteen years. You
0: know. well, she must love you a lot uh what's the what's your life like now?
2: So my life today is I couldn't ask for a better life like i said i have two young kids i got a six-year-old daughter 11 year old boy and they keep me going and i love it because there's one thing i always told myself when i was younger is that i would never be the person that my biological father was to his kids mm-hmm. I would never do that to my kids and I'm happy that I'm sober today because I can be there for my kids. They play lots of sports. I'm at every sporting event and I I'm here for them. I'm present and it feels great.
0: Can you be present for your kids if you're using or drinking?
2: I absolutely could not. Yeah. Because when I used, all I cared about was myself. Right. And I don't ever want to say that and you know have my kids be around
0: and now you lost your own adoptive dad this year correct a couple of months ago
2: I did he passed two months ago um unfortunately you know he lived a great life but um you know this crazy world that we live in today um unfortunately um it took his life
0: he got COVID-19 right
2: He did get COVID-19. He fought it for six months and he fought really hard and he almost got through it, but he got one last infection and it tore him down.
0: And during this time of four years of uh, recovery, you also lost your adoptive mom, right?
2: I did. She um, actually passed as I was, I want to say two months sober and she was very proud of me. Um, She was very proud that I did the inpatient thing. She knew that I needed to go somewhere. And unfortunately, two months after I got out, she did pass.
0: So you, I'm so sorry. There's some, so much loss in your story. You're very, very resilient. Uh, You just kept going and kept hoping and kept trying and you never gave up.
2: Yeah. And um, I would like to get this across to anybody that's listening that it's possible you can do it. Um, I never thought in a million years that I could do it after 18, 20 years of using in my lifetime. But I, I've done it. Like I said, I, the 20th of this month will be four years for me. And that's the longest that I've been sober since I started using at the age 17.
0: This is magnificent. And I guess, how do you see yourself today?
2: Um. I see myself as a proud father, husband, and, you know, I couldn't ask for a better life. You asked me that question earlier, mm-hmm. and, like, my life today is, is great. I just built a brand new house. Um, I got the property that I've wanted for my whole life, and things are great. I couldn't ask for anything else. You know, the bad part is my parents passing away, but they're in a... A good place right now. Right. And to watch my dad suffer through that for six months was really hard. So he's, uh, you know, he accepted that he's going to go spend time with mom. So they're in a good place right now.
0: And what advice would you give to uh, physicians who encounter somebody struggling with a pain pill addiction or an addiction to heroin? And what would you say to the physician uh, no holds barred, who uh, tapered you off uh, two years of Suboxone uh, over a two week period.
2: Ask them to maybe do a little more research and listen to the patient, hear what they have to say, and maybe consider their opinions. And, you know, I give all the physicians and all the doctors all the credit in the world, but you have to have the research and you got to have the facts and you got to understand the disease.
0: The, the, that's the problem in this country. There are uh, 23 million Americans with a substance use disorder and only 11% of them get treatment. And part of the problem is because of our lack of trained addiction specialists. Like the statistics this year, one uh, addiction professional for 5,500 people with addictions so wow. only one addiction expert for 5500 people with uh, substance use disorders and if you compare it to the other specialties like for example a kidney expert a nephrologist there's one uh, kidney expert for every 82 patients as opposed to one addiction oh. expert for you know 5500 people with substance yeah. use disorders so this woman obviously didn't receive good addiction training or, She was from the abstinence model. She trained in the abstinence model and thought, like many of the treatment centers, don't put a patient on controlled substances and certainly don't leave them on controlled substances. But they're not looking at the research because the research... Over the last two decades, clearly shows that if you taper people off Suboxone, they tend to relapse. And I'm thinking particularly of a study by Stacy Sigman in Vermont at the University of Vermont. Uh, if you take a look at any uh, study, the majority of them will will tell you maintenance of Suboxone and doses of 16 milligrams or greater do do the best. What? How many milligrams of Suboxone are you on, John?
2: So I take three strips a day, three yep. eight milligram strips, and like I said, I've been doing that for four years now and it, it, it does wonders for me. I, I swear by it. Um, it keeps me, like I said, functioned throughout the day. I am able to go to work every single day. And I have, I can honestly say in the last two years, I have not had any cravings.
0: What a miracle, right? They've been lifted from you?
2: It has. And yeah. it's been wonderful. Um, like I said, for the last, the first year, obviously I had a couple of cravings, maybe a handful without yep. within the year, but as time goes on, I feel like I'm getting better and better each day.
0: So would you say you've learned how to regulate your emotions?
2: I would. Yes. Yeah.
0: And how about self-care? What do you do uh, to take care of yourself these days?
2: so my job is very physical um but i still find time to my wife and i both she's doing wonderful like i said we both find time to exercise and um my son that plays this travel across so we're traveling every single weekend
0: oh how fun the
2: whole whole summer so we're very active Uh, we love to travel and things like that um Obviously, I can't travel as much as I'd like to. I still got about 20 more years of work, but, and then I can really travel. But I stay active, and that's big for me. Um, That's one of my big things also for sobriety is to stay active. You know, even just around the house, like I said earlier, I just built a new house, and I was a big part of it. And if I stay active, my mind keeps me out of trouble. And. Things like that.
0: What would you say to a family member? How could a family member, like a spouse, best support someone with a a heroin addiction or an addiction to pain pills? Like, what kind of boundaries should they set? Uh, What kind of uh, support do you need?
2: Yeah, that's a great question because, um, you know, my wife set a lot of boundaries throughout the years. And, you know, the first five or six years, She, all the blame went to me. It was my addiction. It's my problem. You need to take care of it. And things like, she didn't understand the disease, you know, the first five or six years. But as our relationship grew, she did a lot more research. She, she's always researching things and now she understands the disease that I have. Mm -hmm. And she accepted that you know, probably about six years ago. And ever since that time that she has done research and has learned about the disease, she's been very supportive. You just have to be, she was very patient. Um, and it's hard. I, I really don't understand. I still ask myself this to this day, how she put up with it for so long. But it sounds- she explains to me, mm-hmm. you know, I understand now. I, I get it. And, you know, the support that she's given me the last couple of years is just tremendous.
0: She's a very special person if she's able to separate the man from the disease.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, and I uh, guess she
0: saw that firsthand when the doctor took you off the Suboxone because you. she saw her husband, she got her husband back, the guy she married for two solid years while you were doing well on Suboxone. Then the doctor took you off it and you all of a sudden uh, started having consequences, and your behavior was lying and hiding and disappearing again. So, and now you're back on the Suboxone back in treatment post 28 day rehab and a couple of years of the men's group and AA and NA, and she's got her husband back.
2: Yes, and she reminds me of that almost on a daily basis. And, um, it's great to hear, it really is. It's nice to hear that um, from my spouse. So it's just all about understanding what that person's going through and how hard it is. You know, I tried explaining that to her, but like I said, when we first met, she didn't want to hear anything about it. But you know, now today she's willing to listen, um, to take me to a meeting if I need to, or Anything that revolves around my sobriety, she's willing to drop and do for me, which is pretty nice.
0: You'd be surprised at how many men I talk to who are in recovery, and they've gone to rehab inpatient, they've gone to outpatient, they go to meetings, they've you know been through a lot of uh, work to get rid of their shame. They're working on themselves. They're becoming honest and becoming present in their uh, you know uh, fatherhood. And just once, they just say, just once, I wish she'd say, uh, way to go. I'm so proud of you. I recognize the changes. You're so much more present with me, with the kids. Uh, You know, the trust is coming back. And, you know, positive feedback and acknowledgement goes a long way, doesn't it?
2: It goes a very long way. You know, the biggest word that I just heard you say was the trust. And trust was the major issue in our relationship. And Absolutely. If you can build a, tr- you know, it takes time. It takes a long time. I still can guarantee to this day, I don't have her hundred percent trust and I get it. I, I understand that, but she says that, you know, each day that I'm sober, the trust comes back. So, you know, positive reinforcement is huge.
0: People always ask, well, what do I need to do to recover from an opioid addiction and, and what causes it? And Partly, it's so complicated, isn't it? Like part of it is genetic. You have an alcoholic biological father, right? So, and Harvard will say the genes play at least 50% of a role. And then we've got the wounds of childhood, the attachment wounds of childhood, a a boy being abandoned by his biological parents and then, you know, having an attachment problem with the biological father. And then we have physical injury. We have a culture of overprescribing. We have stigma against medications that save lives, like Suboxone. Uh, so, th- and some of it's just just luck, isn't it? Uh, some people yeah. can't find good treatment. Uh, I'm so glad you survived, and I really appreciate it, John, that you could come on the show and be as honest and upfront about your recovery. I have. S- I remember somebody once told me in the beginning, uh, recovery is not for cowards. Would you acknowledge that's true?
2: I would. I love that saying, Yes. It's not. Right.
0: right. I mean, no. you're you're the guy who uh you know, Teddy Roosevelt with his daring greatly speech, he says it's not the critic who counts. It's the guy who is in the ring, marred with the blood and the sweat and the dirt and he keeps falling but every time he gets up and that's the guy who's the hero, the real hero because you never quit, you never gave up and I'm just I'm just really you, excited yeah. for you.
2: You can't give up. You got to keep trying and trying and trying. And for me, it finally stuck. And, you know, I f- fell down thousands of times, but I did get back up. And people can do it. it well, you know, you can do it.
0: That's a message of resilience and resounding hope. And uh, congratulations on your uh, four years. Uh, how are you going to celebrate?
2: Um, I will be in Pennsylvania this weekend at a lacrosse tournament. So
0: Of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and enjoying your boy. You've broken yeah. the cycle. You're present for him. Uh, you're present for yourself first. You're present for your wife and your kids. Uh it can't yes. be uh it can't be present when there's an act of addiction. I'm just really happy you escaped it and there is hope. So thank you so very much for sharing your story with us and I wish you all the very best. This is uh recovery, the hero's journey. And you've just been listening to John, uh, a true recovery uh, hero and a very resilient man.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the hero's journey, is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. As you wait for our next program, remember... You are definitely not alone.